Longest Shortest Time is brought to you by Invitae. Your genes can tell you if you're 12% French or 6% Italian. They can also tell you a lot about your future health. When you take an Invitae genetic test, they search for meaningful health information, like whether you're at an increased risk for inherited cancer or heart disease. Based on your results, you may be able to take steps to potentially lower that risk. Learn more by visiting Invitae.com. That's I-N-V-I-T-A-E dot com. I like to think of myself as a strong person, you know, like physically strong. Um, I can beat most women I know in arm wrestling. And, and way back when I was in middle school, when I wasn't good at pretty much anything having to do with gym, um, I knew that when we did the president's physical fitness challenge tests, that I could bench press more than my own weight. Um, and that when we did the hang, like because the girls didn't have to do pull-ups, um, we just had to hang from the pull-up bar. When we did the hang, um, I knew that I would be the last girl hanging. Like all, all the popular girls would drop off long before me. And so um, whenever I felt terrified of childbirth, which was like pretty much the entire time I was pregnant, um, I would just remind myself of how strong I was. I'm one of those people who um, really kind of didn't want to have an epidural if I could at all avoid it. Not really to prove my strength, but because I had taken this natural childbirth class. And in that class, I learned that basically like an epidural or any kind of drugs that you get were were just the first step in this long, slippery slope toward C-section. And I, I wanted to avoid you know, major surgery, if, if at all possible. In, in that class, the teacher told us that 93% of the women who gave birth at this particular hospital got an epidural. Um, and, and I hate to say it now, I really, really hate to say it, but I judged those women. I thought, well, they gave in because they hadn't prepared well enough. And me, I'm I'm preparing, you know, I'm, I'm taking this class. I'm doing my prenatal yoga. I'm reading the anime Gaskin books. Um, you know, women have been doing this for thousands of years and I'm strong and I'm ready. But it turned out that I couldn't do it naturally. I'm one of the 93%. And, and, and I still sometimes have my moments where I feel like, um, I failed, like I failed at childbirth. And then um, someone reminded me uh, a couple months after my daughter was born that, yeah, sure, women have been giving birth naturally for thousands of years, but lots of women used to die in childbirth, even the strong ones. And um, today we're going to hear a story of a woman who could have easily died in childbirth, but didn't. This is the fourth episode of the Longest Shortest Time podcast. I'm Hillary Frank. Megan is a woman I know, kind of a friend of a friend, um, and she'd been hoping to have a natural childbirth, you know, just like me. And she had this situation where um, her water broke, she went to the hospital, but she wasn't dilated at all. And so they gave her these drugs that basically brought on her contractions like like crazy. And, and the thing about Megan is she is a nurse practitioner. And um, she knew what could go wrong with an epidural. She knew you could get spinal headaches. She knew that the practitioners who were putting them in can miss. She had actually almost passed out as a nursing student um, because it was so gruesome to watch. And, and so 
She, you know, had told herself that she did not want an epidural, but when it came down to it, she just knew that she needed one. Um, so she gets the epidural and her son Jack turns sunny side up, just, just like my daughter did. And she tries to push him out and she tries to push and she tries to push, um, and she can't get him out. So she winds up getting an emergency C-section and it actually winds up going so smoothly that she wonders why they didn't just do that to begin with. So she goes home and she seems to be healing fine. She's walking around um, and then she starts waking up at night because she's having trouble breathing. Um, but she feels like this pressure on her chest, but she tells herself that it's just her milk coming in. And then a week after they went home, they have to bring Jack back to the hospital to get some pretty standard tests done because he had been a little jaundiced. And I remember just trying to get dressed and put my makeup on, my clothes on. I kept having to sit down because I was getting really winded. And so when we went back to the hospital, I remember saying to my husband and my sister, you take Jack to get the blood work drawn. I'm just going to stop in the emergency room. They're probably going to laugh me out of there but I just want to make sure that everything's okay. So um, because I, I work in the same hospital system that I ended up being a patient, all the technicians who were doing these tests were telling me exactly what they were seeing. You know, they normally don't do that, but since I was a colleague, they were joking with me and telling me, you know, what was going on, and things looked okay. And then the last thing I had to get was an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart. And I said to the tech, you know, will you, will you tell me what the results are? And he said, well, if the results are good, I'll tell you. But if they're not, the cardiologist is going to have to tell you. And then partway through this test, he just went white as a ghost and was shaking and said, you know, the cardiologist is going to have to talk to you. Wow. But I remember I just ran down the hall after him and I was yelling at him, like, you have to tell me what's going on, you know. The next thing you know, I was in ICU. They were telling me that my heart was failing, you know, that I might need a heart transplant. And my heart rate was already like 150, 160. Right. And they're saying, oh, you have to relax and keep your heart rate down so nothing happens. How, how did you get yourself to do that? Well, I just remember thinking that I'd have to feel a lot worse to die. But I didn't know whether to trust that voice or not because at the same time as a patient you're just put in this really powerless place where the doctor just comes in and tells you how you're doing right and you're used to being on the other side of that right right so so what were you diagnosed with postpartum cardiomyopathy which is uh, a form of heart failure that is just specific to pregnancy the the prognosis is um they say something like it's a diagnosis of thirds where a third of the people die, a third of the people survive but are always kind of actively in heart failure, and then a third of the people either fully recover or recover enough that they're not actively having symptoms. I think it took a few weeks before we knew that I, that I wasn't going to die, but it was many months before we knew which of the other categories I would be in. Wow. So, so all this time you've just had a baby and, um, like, are, are you able to care for him at all? No, I, I only got to see him once or twice in, in the 10 days I was in the hospital. They did kind of smuggle him in 
at one point, um, they brought him in in his car seat with like a million blankets and over him to keep him from, from catching anything in the hospital. And then I just remember kind of like unwrapping this package that had my baby in it. And my parents said like they hadn't seen that look on my face since I was a little kid at Christmas or something. So what what is it like in those early days? I mean, like, it's the most important responsibility a person can have, right? Like taking care of their child. And mm-hmm. what's it like um, in those early days when when you have that responsibility, but um, but you can't take care of that responsibility? I felt at the time, like, he doesn't really need me specifically. Like, he needs love and you know, he needs someone to hold him and feed him, but it doesn't have to be me right now. Later, I, I think when he got a little older and there were times where he did need me specifically and I could feel how, you know, that really fulfills some fundamental need in a person. Then I looked back to that time and, and felt much more conflicted and, you know, even resentful that even though I was so grateful to everyone taking care of him, that, that they got to have that time instead of me. And, and, and so what was your prognosis for future pregnancies? So they told me pretty much, you know, from the beginning when I got my diagnosis that I had less than a 50% chance of surviving another pregnancy. And that was even being generous. I mean, John and I both come from two children families and that was just, you know, automatically assumed that's what we would have. I remember my, my mom, um, saying to me, oh, I can really see you adopting a sweet little girl from China, <laughs> you know, and, you know, this is like hours after I, I was told this. And, and what was your reaction to that? Well, I think, you know, I was seeing it as my mom's typical way of trying to make everything better, but I also kind of believed it. I mean, I definitely over time very much came to believe that the reason why all this had happened is because there's this child out there that we're supposed to save. And and so you do have another child now. You you recently had a baby named Owen. Mm-hmm. And um, did you adopt him? No. We started out looking into adoption and just ran into a lot of roadblocks. So he was carried by a surrogate, a gestational carrier. As that's the, I guess, politically correct term these days. So then, so then, how is this different the second time around? I mean, like obviously, another woman is carrying the baby, but but other than that, how was this process different? Um, you know, with Jack, Jack kicked me like crazy all through the pregnancy, and there was this one certain kind of movement that I kept feeling, and then when he came out and was a tiny baby, there was this this movement that he'd make with his arm. And I was like, oh, that that was what I was feeling for the last three months or whatever, you know. And, you know, we don't have any of that with Owen. I mean, there's always that question in the back of my mind when he's crying. It's like, does he miss her? <laughs> you know, is it, you know, he knew her body for nine months and all of a sudden he's with me and John. He doesn't know our smells and our sounds. And, and it's like, is that part of the reason why he's unhappy right now? But also it's so similar because in this really strange way that I never thought would be the case, both of my kids have ended up kind of 
being these, what feel like to me, like these miracle kids. Like I could have died the first time around and Jack ended up being completely healthy and happy. And then with Owen being carried by someone else and just that the process is so um, amazing that it can even take place. Yeah. Owen is this miracle child, I guess. But does he also just feel like a baby? Yeah, that's totally right. I mean, it's it makes me laugh because, you know, we just were on this high of we can't believe that after all we went through with this crazy process that it worked and we we have a baby and, um, you know, we bring him home and, you know, within a couple of days we realized that, you know, he's not sleeping at night at all. There's, you know, he's, he's has what turned out to be reflux and probably colic. And, you know, I feel like he's trying to tell us, like, stop imposing all your expectations on me. I'm just a kid, damn it. You know, like, let me be a typical baby and stop foisting these ideas on me <laughs> of, of who I'm supposed to be. Megan's heart is still not quite back to normal, but she's been living basically symptom-free for four years. Thanks for listening to the Longest Shortest Time podcast. I'm Hilary Frank. If you want to know more about my birth story, which I mentioned at the top of the show, I wrote about it on my blog. Um, It's the first entry at longestshortesttime.com. There's also a post there about the natural childbirth class I took. And as always, I'm looking for moms and dads to tell me stories about their struggles in early parenthood. If you'd like me to consider your story, go to longestshortesttime.com and click contact. I'm standing outside Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Inside, there are like a trillion objects, and I have to go in there and find 10. So we open a drawer here, and there's Indiana Jones's jacket and Indiana Jones's whip. What is this? Prince donated this guitar. (gasps) I'm Asif Manvi, and I am lost at the Smithsonian. Where do I begin? This place is obviously full of fascinating stuff. Fonzie's jacket worn by Henry Winkler on Happy Days. There are 156 million objects in the Smithsonian's collections. Here are Muppets. These aren't just objects. They're pieces of America's self-identity. I'm looking at a, a robe with the name Muhammad Ali. Only 10 episodes, only 10 objects. That's pretty amazing. Lost of the Smithsonian is out now. Subscribe now in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen.